So for this next track, this one is called Us. So the, the chorus, if y'all can help us with the chorus, the chorus goes, Island woman rise, walang makakatigil. That means no one can stop me. Brown, brown woman rise, alamin ng yung ugat. Brown, brown woman, know your roots. They got nothing on us. Then y'all will say, ay, nothing on us. Ay, nothing on us. Nothing on us. Island woman rise, walang makakatigil. Brown, brown woman rise, alamin ng yung ugat. They got nothing on us. Nothing on us. Nothing on us. Nothing on us. They got it. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and you just heard a clip from Ruby Ibarra's set at the 2023 Deeper Learning Conference. Ruby Ibarra is a Filipino rapper from San Lorenzo, California. And before she kicked off this year's conference, she sat down with Jean Katubai and me to talk about her music, her family, and her career. Let's get right into it. First, I'm such a big fan of yours, like in the Tumblr days. Tumblr like, days, girl, way back. I, yeah, way back. Like I remember all your spoken word stuff. So I'm just like really honored to like, and I'm also from the Bay too, from um, Daily City, awesome. Hercules. So like, it's just really cool to talk to you and have just this time together. So I'm just really excited to just share space with you. So thank you for being here. Likewise, thank you. So let me ask you actually then to start. How did you first come across Ruby stuff? Oh, well, like I said, Tumblr, which for our folks who might not know what Tumblr is, it's like a, a blog sort of based website. And so like, um, like, at the end of high school, getting into college, I was very into my like, spoken word sort of vibe. And so are you a I, poet as well? I'm, I'm closeted. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I came across your your spoken word pieces. And they really like, especially because so much of it was about identity being a woman. And like being at that age, I was like, wow, I've never seen like a panai express themselves mm. in that way. So it was really cool to like, just see see that. Thank you. That definitely means a lot to me. And, um, you know, when you, when you, when I hear you say the word Tumblr, when I see Tumblr, yeah. it's just, it opens up like Pandora's box of like kind of my history and just me yeah. starting out as an artist and putting myself out there for the first time. Um, and hearing that, that you're mm-hmm. uh, a poet yourself, I, I'm sure you understand like what it means to share your work, especially in a more public forum like social media. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely very nerve wracking. And at the time I was still in school and I remember it was websites like Tumblr or um, SoundCloud that allowed me to even feel kind of comfortable with sharing my material because at that point I wasn't performing live yet on campus, whether it was at UC Davis or back when I was uh, in high school. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was definitely kind of my introduction into expressing and owning my artistry. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's go way back then. Um, so you were born in the Philippines in Tacloban mm-hmm. City. I know how to pronounce that because of your album. So, that's <laughs> yeah. um, and that was 1988, uh, 1991. That so is that the album title is your 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 birth. Why why is it circa? It's the start the start of my story. And for me, going into that record. I knew that would be my first introduction, you know, whether or not you've heard my spoken word in the past mm-hmm. or seen my performances at the local open mics. I knew that this was kind of kind of my stamp um, um, with regards to kind of the music world in terms of this is who I am. Um, this is what you can expect to hear from me. And, you know, when I think about my favorite albums 
of what inspired me to become an artist that I am today was always, you know, the storytelling albums, mm -hmm. whether that was Ms. Education um, from Lauryn Hill or more recently uh, Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City, where it goes, be I think it goes beyond music. It's more so kind of a film, a visual, like auditory film where you get a glimpse of their life and, you know, a certain time period of their life. And for me, I wanted to focus on my childhood and migrating from the Philippines to the U.S. And for me, that was a very personal story and a story that I knew the most. Because, um, of course, it being my debut album, I spent so many months like going back and forth. Like, what should this album be about? Is it going to be kind of, you know, just a mix of tracks where I'm just spitting a bunch of lyrical bars? And um, I kind of wanted to refrain from that because I wanted it to be more personal where... Um, I, like I said, I've always been a fan of um, bodies of work where by the time you, you finish listening to the last track on the album, you kind of understand or have an understanding of who that person is behind the microphone. And that really, to me, was the ultimate goal with that record. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you I think you were, is it true that you were four years old when you kind of discovered hip hop? Yep. It was uh, an artist named Francis Magalona Got back it. in the Philippines. So that was when you were still living in the Philippines mm -hmm. that you, yeah, what was that, tell me, what was that like? It was incredible. Um, I wish I could remember more of it just because I was, you know, so young at the time. Um, but what I do, what I can recall is that, you know, I, I couldn't keep my eyes and my ears off of, you know, this performer that I was seeing on, on this television. And it, it was one of those afternoons where I was watching um, these noontime Filipino variety shows, um, you know, sitting there with my grandmother. And all of a sudden, Francis M. gets on stage and um, it's very rhythmic. And he, this is since it's the 90s, he has on like these MC Hammer type baggy yeah. pants and he even has the dance moves to accompany it. And I was like, this is completely different from the music that my parents um, often listen to. You know, this wasn't your typical ballad uh, singer. And um, for me, it was like he was using his voice as an instrument in another way that I've never heard before. And I think that really what was initially um, kind of exciting for me and what drew me to hip hop. How long after that was it that you came to the U.S.? We only stayed in the Philippines for about four years. And then when we moved to the U.S., my, my dad had already been living in California. So me, my mom, and my baby sister, um, we traveled 7,000 miles um, from Tacloban City to the East Bay, California. Um, we ended up in Hayward. And it was, it was definitely a, a shift, a shift in culture, a shift in tradition. And I remember crossing the bridge, the San Francisco Bridge from the airport, and like, oh my God, like all of these structures are so massive, yeah. and it's beyond anything I, I, you know, that could even be encapsulated in film. And um, I think the first time too that I attended elementary school, you know, getting introduced to different cultural foods, eating a burrito for the first time, yeah. you know, not knowing like how how do how do I start to eat eat this? It's not not like Filipino food at all. But to me, that was really was you know the fun part. Um, I think of being an immigrant was the education of it, learning other cultures, hearing other beautiful languages, and just getting to know other people's traditions and practices and understanding that my world that I had understood and recognized before that just expanded like by infinity. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, I wasn't in my bubble anymore. And I, I was so, I became so curious after that. Mm. And how many languages do you speak? 
I speak um, two languages, um, English, obviously, and then this language called Waray, um, from uh, where my my mom is from in Tacloban. But I also understand, um, well, obviously, Tagalog as well, but I, I don't speak that fluently. I, I just understand it. Right. Because you, you rap in all three, right? I rap in all three, yeah. yeah. Like on the, on the track playbills. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from kind of like burritos, in that, that early time that you came to the U.S., how are you feeling? I was feeling nervous. Aside from the excitement, I think within a year of starting kindergarten, I kind of started recognizing that I felt kind of out of place. I felt kind of different to the point where at, in the first grade, I, I believe that I already knew that, you know, I was labeled as a foreigner, um, as an immigrant. Um, I think what led me to kind of start harboring those feelings was in kindergarten, I got put into an English as a second language class um, because I was such a shy kid. I barely even, you know, you know, spoke up in class. And I think my teachers at the time kind of just assumed that I didn't understand or know how to speak English. So I was immediately, you know, transferred into, into those classrooms. And I got to meet such awesome, you know, classmates and students there. But it was always kind of confusing to me because, you know, I, I would go home and ask my mom, like, how come I got moved to this other class when I, I can't understand, I can't speak English. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the very first kind of experience of, you know, being automatically kind of boxed in and labeled as, as the other automatically at such a young age. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, even though I grew up in such a diverse community like the Bay Area, racism never escaped us as well. You know, whether it was, you know, hearing kids on the playground and you know, taunting like my accent or saying racist or derogatory things, um, that was still, you know, kind of visible in, in, in the, the communities that I lived in. And I think just being a, a young immigrant kid and having to navigate those things and asking those kinds of questions to my mom, I think it was kind of challenging for my parents too at the time of what kind of answer do we provide our kid when they themselves were also very new to the country and they were also trying to navigate and find their place in this country. Have you had those conversations with your parents yet? Because my, my parents also, like I was, I was born here, but I feel like we're just starting to, kind of, like now that I see my parents as like, not so much my parents, but like human beings also. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, like you were going through some things too, you know, and we're kind of slowly having those conversations now. So I'm curious, like, does, has that been happening with yours or it's kind of just like, I don't know, what's the, I guess, dialogue around that? Absolutely. More recently, yeah. especially after my record came out yeah. and my mom listened to the album and she understood um, what parts of our, our story I shared. And even like the skit, that's, for that's example, your mom on that's it, my, right? mom, that's okay. my actual mom on yeah. like the very first um, uh, track called Brown Out, where mm -hmm. she tells me to go inside because I'm going to get too dark. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I specifically I, I wrote that script, but that is a reflection of real life experiences right. that I had growing up. And I remember when I had my mom like in my vocal studio at home and mm -hmm. reciting it. Um, at first, it sounded very robotic because like, she was reading the script. Mm -hmm. And I was like, just envision those times where, you know, yeah. you, you did tell us to, to do those things and to kind of, um, you know, shield ourselves because of colorism. Mm. And I think she kind of had to unlearn. It, it's a, it's mm -hmm. also a process of unlearning on our immigrant parents and mm -hmm. of, you know, for them, that was... I think whether that was education that was passed down to them or kind of the normalcy and the traditional practices where they kind of just accepted it as fact and they never really questioned it. I think for their generation, it was more 
um, survival was more so important for them. And so we didn't get to have those conversations around, mm-hmm. um, you know, racism or social justice because mm-hmm. they, they, were, they were trying to make ends meet. They were, they were just trying to survive. And so now for us to have these adult conversations, like with my mother, for mm-hmm. example, I think it's a process of unlearning, not just on her part, but also with, with me and just, you know, going through that process together. Yeah. And because you're, you're the oldest, too. I'm, right? Yeah, I'm the oldest of oh, two. Yeah. Eldest daughter vibes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of responsibility and um, oh yeah, you're the object. generational yeah. trauma we gotta carry for uh-huh, sure. <laughs> for sure, yeah. And you know, I feel like the eldest daughter. I mean, in in a lot of cultures, not only Filipino culture, right? We hold a lot for our families and our people, and so um, yeah, I just. Having those conversations is so important. I remember, like, at the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, everyone was, like, very, like, energized. Um, I, I was I saw a lot of posts of, like, how to talk to your families about mm-hmm. anti-blackness. Because, mm-hmm. like, in Tagalog, there's, like, we don't have the words for that. And so to have these conversations with our families, like, there's literally, like, we need to, like, build, build up the language to even have those conversations so and those conversations yeah. definitely aren't easy i'm sure you know with yeah. with y'all with your family that mm-hmm. i could only assume that there's also other mm-hmm. things that are going to be challenge like the kind of the things that mm-hmm. you'd be kind of hesitant to bring up during like the holiday dinner like mm-hmm. uh, maybe we you should don't want to like, be disrespectful yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, like oh this is going to start like family riff right now everybody's mm-hmm. about to leave um but for me it's just you know, reminding myself too that yeah. you know the difficult conversations are the necessary ones, yeah. um, especially when it's brought, you know, so much trauma to our experience or to generations mm-hmm. in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I don't think I fault my parents at all. It's, I, I definitely, mm-hmm. you know, don't place blame on them. It's just at this point, I kind of have to understand that I have to take the responsibility um, of teaching and guiding them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, shout out to your mom for that performance because we were both like, is that, is she like just like... I was shook. I was like, oh, I need, I need to go inside. Because <laughs> like, this, this is my life right now. This You're like, so- yes, Tita. You're like, yes, mom. <laughs> How did she feel? Because it's like your love and respect for your mom really comes through in that album. And also things that your mom said and stuff, particularly around colorism, it's fairly critical within it. Mm-hmm. When did you start talking to your mom about like, hey, when you tell me to go inside, there's some other stuff going on there. Like, how did that happen? I don't think it was kind of just one conversation starter that, okay, I have a whole list of things and (laughs) I've been wanting to address this for 18 years. (laughs) Um, I think it was more so just as I was getting older and whether it was through conversations with my peers or especially once I... um, started attending college and I started taking classes like Asian American studies where it also brought in my perspective um, I think I just started to share those kind kinds of information to, mm-hmm. to my mom and started questioning you know for the first time um, and even to this day um, when when I when I learn something too and um, it kind of changes my perspective and I'm, I'm always you know quick to question myself first but also question those around me who I know practice the same thing mm-hmm. yeah so if your mom were here and we asked her about it, like what do you what would she say about those conversations, do you think? What's your sense of that? Um, she definitely doesn't tell us to use whitening soap anymore. Um, I think that um, one thing that I am very proud of her is that at some point during the pandemic, um, I heard her, she was FaceTiming um, with one of my cousins back in the Philippines and she was actually 
educating my cousin and telling him to not use those, you know, lightning creams and telling him like the effects that it might have on his skin and that. That little got cancer now. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, first of all, like yeah. the chemicals that are in those products, but also yeah. second, um, kind of hearing her explain that, you know, he should kind of just embrace mm. who he is and for me to hear that from my mom in, in that generation where she's you know kind of taken the information that not only I've shared with her but I think she's done her own research and um, formed her own kind of opinion around those things and hearing her communicate that um, to me shows me that even at, at her age and even from her coming from her generation she's willing to to learn and and change and you know progress and I think ultimately as human beings, that that is, you know, the ultimate goal, right? Yeah. Is how can we be better than we were, and um, you know, that's why I'm, I'm I'm super proud of my mom. So, when did you play the album for your parents? Was it like I'm gonna get the whole thing done, and then we're just gonna sit down, or was it like song by song, or how that happened? I would share uh, several tracks with my sister and my mom here and there, um, especially my mom. Um, so kind of a, a context to this. She's a big hip hop fan, almost as big as, as I am. So growing up in middle school, like she would be bumping too short in the car, for example. Like we'd, we'd arrive at my middle school parking lot and my mom has too short playing in the car. That's And that's not my request, that's her. Like her um, asking me to like burn a CD with like two short E40 on there, and that's her like blasting in her own vehicle. And um, her being a hip hop fan, um, her seeing kind of my growth as an artist and um, becoming um, more of a, an MC myself throughout the years as I got older, I think she's kind of been not to say that she's always involved in the process, but she's always kind of eager to learn like what's the new stuff that I'm working on. And so while I was making Circa '91, um, she was definitely with me throughout you know the the process, and I would share few tracks here and there but once the album was finished I definitely made sure to tell them like don't skip any tracks and you have to start from track number one because it's going to be a story mm. so I've, I've heard you in a couple of interviews mentioned that you were like shy growing up right and so I'm like dang like how did you go from like a shy kid to like this like super strong like badass MC like <laughs> at what point did that happen and how did you kind of get to that point it's still a journey. I still <laughs> consider myself shy. I'm shy. Yeah. I'm awkward. I'm nerdy. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is why, I, like, the only other times I've been to San Diego is Comic-Con. Ah, okay. <laughs> I'm, yep, I'm yep, definitely... Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> For me, I think what's given me the strength, the courage, and the bravery is through the art, mm -hmm. you know, finding my voice. I think whether, you know, you're an immigrant or whether you come from, you know, trauma or mm -hmm. um, experiences that kind of limit your voice mm -hmm. when you feel like you don't have a voice I think it's going to be kind of natural that you're going to be shy or you're going to be afraid to speak out and I think for the longest time until I found hip-hop or I, I found poetry mm -hmm. I finally found a way to utilize you know this voice that I've been wanting to to share mm -hmm. and I definitely owe it to music for sure to that's allowed me to be able to come into to my identity mm -hmm. and you know being comfortable in my own skin. Even when I was first starting out to rap, I would re-record myself even sometimes, mm -hmm. like doing doing multiple takes because I felt like my accent was showing up in the track. Like, oh no, like that sounds too fobby. Mm -hmm. And um, fob means fresh off the boat. Mm -hmm. And to me, you know, what, after doing that throughout high school and then once I got into college and um, I was still finding myself doing that, and I thought to myself like, why are you still doing that to yourself? Why are you still, you know, 
erasing those tracks because in a sense by doing that that's erasure that's a sense of erasure mm -hmm. that you're erasing your identity mm -hmm. and a part of who you are and so for me too it was kind of just being comfortable 100 in in my story in my mm -hmm. voice and what i look like and knowing mm -hmm. that if i'm going to present myself wholly and fully as me and mm -hmm. people accept that then why should i change otherwise Did you start with writing or freestyling? I definitely started with writing. I actually started writing kind of rap verses first before I got into poetry. When I got into poetry, it was because of my um, my high school drama teacher. Shout out to Miss Beth Daly from San Lorenzo High. I don't, I'm not sure if she's still an educator. Um, she introduced me to a Deaf Poetry Jam. She would show a lot of those clips in her class and then also ask us, the students, to, to perform, um, whether it was a piece that we wrote ourselves or a particular piece that we really liked, to share it in front of the class once a month. And that was my very first introduction to, to performing in front of um, an audience. So yeah. shout out to our educators out there. And it's just, it's, it's again, inspiring to be in a space like Deeper Learning where we are in this community with educators. Because I can definitely say that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my teachers. So how old were you, were you when you started writing verses? I was around 13 years old, um, the eighth grade, inspired again by Lauryn Hill, um, inspired by Tupac. Those were the very first hip hop artists that I, I was really drawn to their voice and their story, so much so that it inspired me and I thought to myself that maybe I can also share my story and, and write it in, in kind of a poem or um, a rap form. And so I started doing that in the eighth grade and um, I started doing um, talent shows um, at school and then eventually getting to, into drama class and performing more often. Were you performing your own raps at talent shows? Oh, I definitely, I've, I've never performed like other raps. Um, I don't know, I've always been kind of picky around that just because I think Probably growing up in the 90s and back then with battle rap being such a big thing and lyricism, you know, the golden era of hip hop, where that to me, I kind of adapted that mentality where if you're going to be on the mic, not only should you have something to say or share, like there should be a reason why you're in front of the microphone, but it should only also be your, your work. And that's kind of the mentality I've always adapted. Did you say that you like were kind of doing Tumblr before you were doing other live shows? Yeah, I, I, that, was, right? I was on Tumblr before live shows. Tell us about the Tumblr thing. Tumblr was awesome because... Um, it was a time. <laughs> <laughs> For the younger generation that's listening, um, it's basically, like you mentioned, like a blog and um, kind of like the Instagram before its time. Mm -hmm. And I particularly loved seeing the posts on Tumblr because there were other artists on there too that I followed and it was just you know kind of uh, this safe space where you could post your video you can post your audio I, I typically would you know rap on like Lupe Fiasco instrumentals for example and and post them up on on Tumblr and I, I never really thought about it. I thought I was just you know sharing my stuff with my friends whoever was following me but laying the groundwork that was my practice you know, to, to be able to do the things that I do today so I think it also helped me build the the consistency of as, as a writer and um, you know making sure to, to constantly kind of publish things and to put things out I mean I think especially like being Asian at that time too like in terms of representation like there was not really anybody really out so for I, at least for me like I would be like watching YouTube like Wong Fu yeah. productions <laughs> like you know one down stuff like that and like just to see people who look like me was so powerful like and you couldn't get that in any other sort of media That's absolutely right yeah. um before you know now we're 
we're seeing, you know, K-pop as a global phenomenon. We're seeing a lot more um, films and TV shows that center on Asian American characters. But you're absolutely right. Bef at that time, um, it was st you barely saw um, Asian American or Filipino mm -hmm. Filipino representation in, in mainstream media, and, and because of that. Asian American and Filipino um, artists gravitated towards the Tumblers mm -hmm. and the YouTubes and the SoundClick, and because you know these were spaces where we were not only able to share our stuff but also able to build an audience through that. And I think that was kind mm -hmm. of like the first indication that you know there is an audience mm -hmm. for Asian American artists. Yeah, now everybody watches anime. Like Blackpink is gonna like headline Coachella. Yeah. Like, was there a point where you were like, people want to hear this. This this has an audience. Yeah, like, did you like, ones. like, did you get like a gig off of like something on Tumblr or like YouTube or something? Well, specifically for Tumblr, it led me to a friendship with Domino from the producer of Hieroglyphics, um, this rap group from the Bay Area. And also getting introduced to other artists um, mm -hmm. like um, Bamboo, for example, seeing them and following them on Tumblr and getting connected through, mm -hmm. you know, websites like that. But for me, I think what kind of shifted my understanding of, okay, this is kind of a hobby. I'm just rapping in my bedroom and posting these videos up on Tumblr and YouTube to, oh, maybe I should do live shows, was one of my videos that I had published on Tumblr. Um, it was a track over an old hip-hop beat from like the early 90s. Um, it ended up getting on this World Star Hip Hop blog. And I remember I, I was at, I had just started working. I just graduated college. I just started working. And I remember seeing like, I was on my phone all of a sudden, I got all of these notifications on Tumblr and my Facebook where I was getting so many friend requests. I was like, what's going on? Like <laughs> something had to have happened. And within like that afternoon, by the time I like um, clocked off work, it was like a million views already. So I was like, this is, a kind of going viral right now yeah. so definitely you know those experiences on posting on tumblr and youtube has helped me expand my audience like for people who aren't local local audiences and um allowed me like to this day to be able to perform in in different cities and different towns i can't imagine putting anything online because you just know people are going to say mean stuff like it's a guarantee <laughs> it's an absolute ironclad guarantee and just like being like, I'm going to put up some verses and like, how do you kind of go, I know this is coming and I'm still just going to put it out there. Okay, so when it was Tumblr, I wasn't so kind of nervous about the comments and the reception because for the most part, it was just my friends following me on there. Um, but when it got to larger platforms such as World Star Hip Hop or when I started posting videos on YouTube where it's kind of a free-for-all, like whoever, whoever, you know, catches this video, you can type and comment whatever you want. And I think specifically it was World Star Hip Hop where I was scrolling through because I was excited. I was like, a million views. I was scrolling through the oh, comments. I was like, oh my God, my feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm being destroyed. <laughs> I want to quit. And then even my mom, too, like she was on the computer. She was responding to every comment. She's like, Ruby, there's so many haters. <laughs> and she was like, you can't talk to my daughter like that. And then just like these type of comments. I'm like, mom, you can't be a keyboard warrior right now. Like, do not respond to every comment. Like, a lot of these people are trolling on purpose. And I think that's something that I've learned in like the last five to six years is to avoid the comments and just more so, you know, focus on um, the reception in terms of maybe like the view count or the demographics that are leaning towards my music. And at the end of the day, I think I just have to remember since we're in such a big social media times where I have to ask myself constantly, like, 
first of all, like, why do I do this? Why do I make music? And I make music to express myself. And when I kind of remember and recognize that, those comments aren't so hurtful anymore. <laughs> but I definitely saw a lot of very, you know, sexist and racist comments. Does somebody read your comments for you? Do you have like an agent whose like job it is to like... Yeah, my mother. <laughs> <laughs> my number one. <laughs> she could probably um, recall every single one. <laughs> Username and everything. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, I'd block them. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, awesome. Have you always like had a sort of more conscious taste in hip hop than your mom? Because like you were talking about like Lauren Hill and like she listened to Too Short. <laughs> I think... Um, Probably just like kind of the hip hop education and um, kind of your own kind of digging through the crates and, you know, finding music yourself. Um, with my mom, it's definitely more radio based of, you know, what is readily available. She turns on, you know, our local radio, hip hop radio stations. Shout out 106.1 KML. Hey. <laughs> yeah, stations like yeah. that and whatever they're playing. Whereas for me... Um, Again, you know, growing up in a time where, you know, you had, you know, these new platforms popping up, mm -hmm. whether it was, you know, the SoundCloud and the YouTube and um, yeah. also the um, file sharing, mm -hmm. um, you know, Lime <laughs> yeah. file sharing sites. And yeah, not yeah. saying we support that, but, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, for me, you know, I, I kind of when I saw those, you know, uh, software starting to pop up more frequently, mm -hmm. um, I took that as an opportunity to kind of go back and teach myself about hip-hop mm -hmm. like I'm downloading um, albums from you know from the 80s like okay I gotta run DMC mm -hmm. um, I learning about um, common and um, for me it was kind of just going back and hearing the, the previous albums and previous works because I felt like if I don't know about hip-hop history again I'm, I'm a guest in this space as a Filipino-American mm -hmm. rapper you know this is a genre and a culture made by black people, made by the black community. And so I've always understood that I'm a guest in this space. And for me to be respectful in this space, I, I do need to educate myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did you sort of see your relationship with Bay Area hip hop when you were just starting to rap? When I was first starting to rap, um, with regards to Bay Area hip hop, I am, you know, to this day, of course, definitely a, a fan. And that, you know, that's even without bias, um, just because I feel like it's still, um, as much as, you know, we had the hyphy movement, you know, back in the in the mid-2000s, it's still kind of like the unspoken voice, I feel, when it comes to kind of the regions and also the, the subculture and subgenre within hip-hop, where um, I... It, it's always it's never lost in my mind that oh, I wish I wish the rappers from from this region you know got more shine got more mm -hmm. opportunities and got to bigger stages, um, and there's it's such a rich culture of you know also a parallel to that of the activism you know in, in Berkeley in Oakland in San Francisco and it was often tied in with the music and the lyrics and you know kind of the purpose that of why these MCs were rapping in the first place, mm -hmm. and so you know beyond being a fan um, as an artist. Um, I, I've also been, you know, cognizant that um, sometimes I wonder is is my sound Bay Area enough because it's not typically, you know, your 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 dance tracks that you know we're, we're accustomed to listening to. But then I remember that you know we also do have artists like I mentioned, like Souls of Mischief, Mischief mm -hmm. and and Hieroglyphics, where it's not necessarily you know that usual kind of Bay Area. Um, 808 with the claps type of you know club sound and and I think that just goes to show the diversity of hip hop um, in the Bay Area. So ultimately, you know, I I definitely you know 
carry the Bay Area region on on my back and make sure to represent, you know, in in every, you know, gigs that we do and let people know, you know, where I'm from. But I think that I would love for Bay Area to to definitely get more love. I I don't think that it's gotten the love that it's deserved yet. And so were were you going to shows? In high school? I, w- I wish I could have gone to, to shows in high school, but not to say that my parents were strict, but they definitely expected me to be home. Like I could have... Nine o'clock. Yeah, <laughs> I could definitely have my friends over. And at that point, I was already actually yeah. recording myself. I, 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 I saved up, you know, uh, lunch money and I got myself a microphone, plugged it into the back of my computer and started recording songs already in high school. Mm. Um, so I, I always usually had friends over or also other MCs from high school where, you know, we'd link up during lunch time like hey you want to come over after school and let's record a track together so I'd have guys like actually at at, at my at my mom's house all the time and my mom never really questioned that even though there were like five dudes like in my small bedroom recording like hunched over a computer she knew that you know there was there was kind of a a purpose to it but for me to go I think she would prefer that than me to be going out to shows Mm -hmm. so I actually didn't like long story short, um, my very first hip hop show wasn't until college, where Common um, came to UC Davis to perform, and I heard him perform "The Light" wow. in person for the first time. And me and my roommate were like in the third row. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, this is so magical! Yeah, yeah, sick. That's awesome. And so, who was it who you said the guy, the, the guy who was affiliated with Hieroglyphics? Uh, Domino. Domino. So how'd that happen? He hit me up on Tumblr because he saw one of my posts and um, he said, like, like where, where are you located? And I, I said that, you know, I was in the East Bay and he wasn't too far. Um, and so we decided to meet up at his uh, uh, engineer and producer friend's um, apartment. And then we tried, you know, working on some tracks together. And then we actually ended up doing um, a show where I opened up for Hyro um, in, in San Francisco. Oh, cool. Wow. Oh, so it was wow, such a cool awesome. experience. Well, I'm very curious, Ruby, because I know you're a very uh, respected, a very, like, woke individual, but I need to know, like, what is your, like, this face song? Because <laughs> I thought you were born 88, but you're 91, I'm 92, so <laughs> we're very close in age, so. My this face song? Yeah. It has to be Mac Dre, it has to be Fizzle Dance. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Mine is no ho. <laughs> Or get stupid, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we should get into your career as a scientist. So what, what were you studying at Davis? So I studied uh, biochemistry and molecular biology. Um, right. I was initially pre-med. Um, my, my plan at the time was I was going to be um, a doctor. So I wanted to go to med school eventually as a pediatrician. And I think eventually I kind of shifted and I thought, okay, maybe I want to go to pharmacy school. I want to be a pharmacist. So I, I did all the science requirements, all the course requirements, um, even did internship at the UC Davis uh, Medical Center at the emergency room up in Sacramento. And then I think it was my junior year um, where I realized that I, I didn't feel like I was 100% myself. Um, something in that path and that journey was still missing and music always kept calling me back. So even throughout Davis, as I was doing my courses, I was still also a performer on campus. And I started performing at Sac State and doing local open mics in Sacramento and Davis as well. Mm-hmm. And um, just growing my community of artist friends. And um, I think 
ultimately I, I recognize that my, my heart is drawn towards in, towards music but I did still end up you know you know finishing my time there at Davis and I ended up working at a biotech company um, up until um, 2021. And you were you were working on COVID stuff, is that true? Yep, I did um, DNA testing. I remember at the start of 2020, actually. Well, I don't know if people still do this, but for me, this has kind of been a ritual where December 31st, I already have a list of like my New Year's resolutions. Like, okay, these are the things I'm gonna do, but probably not end up doing. <laughs> and for me, 2020, the goal was to become a full time artist. Okay. And that, you know, I thought to myself, like, okay, I think. Things are finally lined up for me, and I'm I'm getting more consistent with the performances, and income is coming in more frequently, where I can sustain myself through my art. Mm-hmm. And then I did a show in February of 2020, where me and my entire band we performed at the Getty Museum, and we did two sold out shows there. So I was definitely on a high. I was like, okay, the rest of the year is about sign. to be like this. Yeah. This is like the stars are aligned. Mm-hmm. Literally a week after our trip, March 2020 there's this announcement that the entire nation is going to be on a shutdown. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I started getting emails that all of my gigs for that um, upcoming spring, like, oh, we have to cancel it because of the ongoing, the pandemic mm-hmm. and um, the, the, the closure of the nation. And I was like, wait, this is serious right now. Like, what's going on? And so I found myself actually working close to double the hours at work. And I ended up staying at, at my company up until 2021. And that's not to say yet, you know, that that was a bad thing. I think if anything, what the pandemic taught me with regards to the work that I was doing in sciences was it gave me a different perspective of kind of the importance of, you know, the work that we did. High Tech High Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Ruby Ibarra's album, Circa 91, is out on Beat Rock Records. The song that she introed at the start of the episode is called Us. We've got a link to the music video in the show notes. If you're wondering what happened to Ruby's career after lockdown, we were wondering that too, but we had to cut the interview short so she could sound check. There will be a part two to this interview. Look out for it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>